Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who was accused of murdering his son Paul and his wife Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a myriad of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. Before we start this episode, a quick word about another Crime Story Media production. October 2014. Was David Martinez responsible for killing Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond? That's at the heart of Night Raid, a new podcast from Crime Story Media. Subscribe or follow wherever you get this podcast. On our last episode, we continued our examination of the direct examination of Colleton County Police Sergeant Daniel Green as he reviewed his own body camera video recorded at the crime scene on the night of the murders. On this installment, we continue our look at Sergeant Green's testimony. That's all coming up right after the break. 26, 2023, the second day of the Alex Murdoch murder trial. At the end of our last episode, Prosecutor Creighton Waters continued his questioning of Colleton County Police Sergeant Daniel Green about footage from the body camera that he wore as he worked the scene of the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. The footage is not visible to the courtroom cameras, however, that footage has been published on YouTube by South Carolina TV station WLTX, with the images of the bodies of Paul and Maggie digitally obscured. As we ended our previous installment, Sergeant Green was explaining his observations of the crime scene to his law enforcement supervisor, Lieutenant Lonnie Nettles. As we begin today, Prosecutor Waters plays for Sergeant Green a section of the footage in which it appears that Lieutenant Nettles seeks to assign the responsibility of creating a log of the crime scene. One of Sergeant Green's deputies, who sports glasses and a beard and wears a baseball hat, a blue t-shirt with the word sheriff and bright yellow across the chest and khaki pants, is assigned the responsibility. We learned during Waters' questioning of the sergeant that the identity of the log keeper is Deputy Cody Pruitt. Who can start a log? Who's the most expendable that can start a log? Let's put it that way. This is. Can you start a crime scene log, please? Uh, a log started. <clears throat> Sleds on the way. Let's push. Can we run the tape? 2007, ready to be Yes. From that last pole right there to that last pole. Get a piece of paper, start writing names and times. You don't have any kind of paper? Who's that individual right there in the center of the screen? To the right. Detective to the right? Yes. That would be Debbie Pruitt. And what did you just ask him to do? 
Uh, start a crime scene log. And tell the jury what that is. <clears throat> sure. So a crime scene log is established as soon as uh, additional people start to arrive on scene. We document exactly who comes into the actual crime scene, as well as the exact time that they come into the crime scene. The body cam video resumes. We see Sergeant Green's hand holding crime scene tape walking towards a structure. As he walks, he appears to remark to his unnamed companion about the freshness of a set of tire tracks on the ground illuminated by his flashlight. Here, borrow that. Son of a We can push it from that hole to that hole. Yep. Sure. I do see something that look old or fresh. As he arrives at one of the support posts of the structure and begins to wrap crime scene tape around it, the prosecutor again pauses the video. What are we doing right here with the tape? So I'm securing it to the corner of that part of the shed to run it along to the a shed on the opposite side of that area. Uh, we just expanded the crime scene out a little bit further. To protect a larger area? Yes. The video again resumes. Sergeant Green ties off the crime scene tape on a structural post and then hands it off to Lieutenant Nettles, who unspools the tape as Green uses his flashlight to illuminate their path to a structural post on another building. As they walk and police radio chatter continues, Green appears to express the hope that they have enough tape to get to the next structure. Go away to that Let's just keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, I think we got it. This is five three all the responding units to Mosel Road, stop at the road. No one else come down the dirt road. Stop at the road. That's here, twenty eight seven. Probably doing that. Eighty-six on ninety-five. Nettles and Green arrive, and Nettles ties off the remainder of the police tape to the support post of the second structure. They then walk back towards the crime scene as Nettles asks Green about a drive path leading away from the structures. What's the other way up here? I'm back that way, I guess. Where the house is, I guess. We then hear a voice on the police radio make reference to the quote, Whiskey Mike. You refer to the Whiskey Mike, left door on the We've heard on this video the term Whiskey Mike. Can you uh, tell me what that term refers to? Yeah, when we say Whiskey Mike, we're referring to a white male, a Whiskey Fox, or a Whiskey Fox trial would be a white female. And in the context of this particular scene, who's the Whiskey Mike and who's the Whiskey Fox or Whiskey Fox trial? As I was approaching, you could hear me say to dispatch from our radio that there was a Whiskey Mike, the Whiskey Mike referring to Paul, Whiskey Fox referring to Maggie. The body camera video moves back towards the location of Alex Murdoch's SUV and the bodies of Maggie and Paul and then onto the sheriff's cruisers. When he arrives at the vehicles, Deputy Pruitt appears to complain about a lack of proper logging material and Sergeant Green makes a call. Do we have anything else? Maybe. Got it. Yeah, we're going to have to get I'm not having it bad, it's just I'm yes. using the back side of all the paper, so all the front side of the paper has names and information on it. Well, you can borrow mine for a minute. It's perfectly fine. Good. I just didn't want you to believe it. I'm going to love to do it. I'm going to take it. I'll take it for calls. Do you not have any crime scene log sheets?
After Sergeant Green finishes his call, he heads back towards the kennel structures, where Paul Murdoch's body lay, and we see three men surveying that location. One of the men wears a blue t-shirt and khakis, and sports dark hair and a dark beard. We later learn that this is Captain Jason Chapman, the senior officer at the crime scene. We also see another man, who also wears a blue t-shirt along with a light blue ball cap. He is one of the detectives working the crime scene, and the third man we see wears a white Oxford, a blue paramedic vest, and khakis. Prosecutor Waters asks Sergeant Green about these individuals. There, do you recognize those individuals? I do. Can you tell us who they are? On the far left would be Detective Tyndall. In the forefront toward the center would be uh, Captain Chapman, and on the other side of him, in the lighter colored shirt with the black vest, was uh, Barry McCroy, worked for Fire Rescue. Uh, what, did the sheriff respond to this particular incident, to your recollection? Uh, yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, but as far as who was the senior officer actually working the scene at this point in time until SLED arrives, who was it at this point? The, that would be Captain Chapman. Captain Chapman? That's correct. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As the body cam video resumes, Sergeant Green walks back over to the vehicles where Deputy Cody Pruitt stands. The deputy says that a visitor has arrived on the scene for Alex Murdoch, who he mistakenly calls Eric. Pruitt asks Green if the visitor should be escorted over to Alex. Green suggests that Pruitt not let that happen. There's a guy over here that wants to talk to him? Yeah, but I don't know if you want me to tell him that or if you want me to just chill for me. Or if you want me to escort him over. He does not need to walk over there. No, I mean, a long way. He does not need to go over there. So he needs to stay there. Then. He can't. See this. Uh, before you had referred to um, a brother arriving, is that correct? Uh, yes. And was that a brother? Was he allowed to talk to Alec and go over to Alec? Uh, I, I believe he did. I don't recall. I never actually interacted with him at all. And then this discussion right here with uh, with uh, Deputy Pruitt, what was going on right there? So there was someone that had arrived on scene and wanted to go and speak with Mr. Murdaugh. Uh, I told him to just wait off, wait a minute on allowing him over there so we could determine the best way to allow them to talk, uh, simply because the crime scene was so large and we did not want to contaminate anything that didn't need to be. Okay. Uh, to your knowledge, was that individual, whoever it was, allowed to interact with Mr. Murdoch? I believe so. He was eventually, yes. People that arrived were allowed to go see Mr. Murdoch, is that correct? That's correct. He was not in custody at any time, is that correct? No. Prosecutor Creighton Waters resumes the playing of Sergeant Daniel Green's body cam footage. We see Sheriff's Deputy Cody Pruitt, now with a pad and pen in his hand, asking the sergeant for some of the basic facts to write in the crime scene log. Caller and the caller's brother's name on here because I don't know their names yet, but I can just 
Alright. I don't know where you were at. I just found the first thing page I can find. Female victim, male victim, male caller. And then the other guy though. I mean he hasn't came and tried to take that. Don't have to worry about it. Green then walks Pruitt over to his sheriff's cruiser and inside starts to tap some buttons on the vehicle's computer. As Sergeant Green and Deputy Pruitt discuss the information on the cruiser's computer in the body cam footage, Prosecutor Waters periodically stops the video to ask the sergeant to explain what the jurors are seeing. What are you doing on the computer right here? Do you recall? Yes, yeah, so on those computers that are mounted in our patrol vehicles, we can see details of the call for service uh, or other calls for service. In this case, I was looking at the information for the incident on Moselle uh, to determine what units had been dispatched, what units arrived, and when they arrived due to Deputy Pruitt trying to establish the crime scene log. And you use the term call for service, which is a police term, but that essentially means responding to any emergency or... Any, any, any type of call, any citizen that would call our dispatch center to request law enforcement assistance or fire rescue assistance, it's called, we just refer to it as a call for service. I came on scene at 2226. 2226? Yes. Yep. You say you came on scene at 2226? That's correct. For those of us who don't know military time, can you tell us what that is? That would be 1026 p.m. And that's June 7th, 2021? That's correct. And... Whoever U21 is with Fire Rescue, just write U21, Fire Rescue U21. In the body cam footage, we see rain begin to fall outside the police cruiser. And then... How the same he, time as you? He came on scene, yeah, same time as me, it's fine. Medic 18 at 2227. It rained more at this point? Yeah, it's, it started raining at this point, yes. 758 on scene 2230, same time as you. 653 on scene at 2239. 2239? Yep. Yeah. Those numbers uh, that you're referring to, what do those represent? So the numbers would be uh, the badge numbers of individuals arriving on scene. They're just recording when various people arrived in the computer? They're, they're recorded in the computer, so when we arrive on scene, we let dispatch know our number and that we're on scene. They log it into the computer, and then we can then put it on our crime scene log. That's all I have as far as the times on this goes. Sergeant Green closes the door to his cruiser and walks back over towards the kennel structures where Paul Murdoch's body lay. Four individuals appear in frame, including the senior officer at the scene, Captain Jason Chapman, whom Sergeant Green had identified earlier. Prosecutor Waters pauses the video. Visual walking off to the left of the screen, who is that? The one walking away from the screen or that just approached? Walking away. That was Deputy McDowell. All right, and then the center of the screen, who was that? The one that just walked up and is in center screen now would be Captain Krauss. All right, and then next to him, facing the, uh, the body camera? That would be Captain Chapman. All right, and then to the far right? Detective Tyndall. Is were there dogs in those kennels, to your recollection? There were a couple of dogs. I don't remember the exact number, but I do remember seeing some. Next, we see Sergeant Green's hands sliding into a pair of gloves. What'd you just put on your hands then? Those would be latex gloves. And the gloves you put on that you described earlier to the jury, what were those gloves? Those are more tactical gloves. They're not necessarily ideal for handling any kind of evidence, but due to me already being out there next to the shotgun, I did not have any latex gloves on my person, so I used what was available. 
And why are you putting on latex gloves right now? Uh, they were wanting to look under the sheet where Paul was, so just to prevent any kind of contamination of any possible evidence at all, we, we, we just always put gloves on. As the video resumes, we see Sergeant Green join the four men, including Captain Chapman, as they walk over to Paul Murdoch's body and lift the sheet off of it. Well, the dad's over there. Actually, hold it, hold it, hold it. People just won't do it. Fire rescue might have some more sheets we can steal. Okay. That's right. It shouldn't be in the back pocket. It's all Prosecutor Waters pauses the video as Captain Chapman appears to be looking under the body. What is that discussion about right there? So the whole purpose for even trying to look up under him was to determine if there was an additional firearm on scene already, possibly under Paul. Um, there was 300 blackout casings found near Maggie. They were trying to determine if there was possibly a 300 blackout rifle under Paul. And while, while was, were y'all concerned that there may be one under Paul? We just... Trying to rule it out as a possibility. And what was that possibility then? That he could have shot Maggie. And then did what? Shot himself. So you're looking to see if there's a gun underneath if he had shot himself and then fallen on top of it. That's correct. Captain Chapman apparently sees a phone on Paul's body and asks Sergeant Green about it, prompting this response from the sergeant. I haven't asked the dad about the phone, but he dad did say he came over and checked the pulses. Did you see a phone near Paul when you arrived on the scene? Yes, there was a phone laying on top of him near his back pockets of his shorts. Back it up just a little bit. <coughs> is that it right down there at the bottom? That's it. After the video is reversed, Prosecutor Waters asks for it to be resumed. I haven't asked the dad about the phone, but he dad did say he came over and checked the pulses. Beyond that, I don't know what else to do. He shot though. He did have a shotgun with him, and I have secured that in my vehicle. Yeah, but so I've got multiple gunshots out of that window, too. Do we see a shell? At least three shells. After Captain Chapman puts the sheet back on Paul's body, the footage from Sergeant Green's body cam moves behind the kennels and over to a chicken coop. To the left of the screen, there appears to be, uh, what does that appear to be? To the very left of the screen. There are some dog crates over there on top of one of the dog crates. It's actually a dead chicken. Say that again, sorry. A dead chicken on the far left-hand side of the screen. Did you, uh, Your Honor, with your permission, could you step down to the screen point that you're talking about, too? It's difficult to see, but right here on top of that small dog crate was a, what appeared to be a dead chicken. Is that that your light's on right there? That's correct. That's when I was really noticing the chicken. Sergeant Green walks over to where Alex Murdoch's vehicle stands and again speaks with Captain Chapman. Just, just so you know, I've got at least five holes in the window in the back of that shed where rounds were exiting out the back that way. Which is going to be what got because of the what number that It is currently in my vehicle. With that, Prosecutor Waters concludes his review of the sergeant's body cam footage and moves on to a series of photographs of the crime scene extracted from the footage. I'm going to show you what's been marked as exhibit uh, number five from your testimony and see if you recognize this image. Yes, sir. That would be an image from my body camera when I was looking at the tire tracks in the grass. All right. There's up on the screen that gray, but that, who is that person in the image right there? That would be Mr. Murdoch. All right. And then just kind of in this area, it's more clear on the video, but that would be the, charge, the tire yeah. tracks you described earlier? Yes. Where I'm shining my flashlight at that point is where the tire tracks were. We, uh, we cut the video off after playing sort of the relevant parts, but what did you do uh, for the remainder of this scene as, as the evening continued? 
Uh, so my, the remaining part of, of my role would have just been making sure the crime scene stayed secure, people stayed out of where they weren't supposed to be. Um, investigators were handling the remainder of the investigation. Did eventually uh, anyone from the SLED, the State Law Enforcement Division, show up? They did. I, I don't believe that would have been captured on my body camera, but they did, yes. At some point, did you uh, like to turn your body camera off? I did. I cleared it with my supervisor, Captain Krause, to ensure that I would not be needed for any additional investigative purposes, talking to Mr. Murdaugh, or handling any additional evidence. And once that was okayed, I turned it off. And so that was consistent with uh, standard police procedures and practices and when you turn the body camera off? That's correct. You just didn't decide to do it willy-nilly or anything? That's correct. Um, at what point, uh, just roughly, do you remember, did you clear the scene or leave the scene? Uh, I don't think I left the scene until several hours later. Uh, were you still there when Sled Crime Scene arrived? Yes. Did you remain the entire time they, they were there or did you leave uh, at some point? I would have left uh, prior to the end of my shift. Uh, I couldn't tell you the exact time that it was, but uh, I, they were multiple units, including SLED and Carlton County investigators, still on scene when I left. Uh, that's all the questions after this whiskey, Your Honor. With that, Creighton Waters concludes his direct examination of the witness, and Judge Clifton Newman calls for a break. After the break, defense attorney Dick Harpudlian rises to cross-examine Sergeant Green and begins by asking the witness why he wouldn't return phone calls. For my own edification, I'm curious. Uh, I had called over several weeks, left you voicemails for you to call me back and talk to me. Have I not? I haven't received any voicemails. You don't check your voicemail? Did you call my cell phone? No, I called your office. Okay. I don't have your cell phone. Okay. It's possible they sent you to the wrong one. I don't know. But you've spent an extensive amount of time talking to Mr. Waters about your testimony, have you not? I've spoken with him a few times, yes. How many times? Three or four, maybe at least. And has he reviewed with you the points he was trying to make? We've discussed the body camera footage extensively. Harpudlian then replays a piece from the early section of the sergeant's body cam footage. Let me go to a specific uh, piece of video. Apologize for the AV situation required. We had my AV guy work on working there. Did you get that list? So, as he's preparing this, you indicated you were asked by Mr. Water that there was water on the ground, right? It hadn't been raining, and you saw water, right? That's correct. And as I understand it, and we're going to look at the video in just a minute, that water was primarily, at least what we see in your video. Um, on the concrete area around the dog pens, correct? That's what it appears. Okay. And um, let's, let's go to that first. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Now, you're walking down in front of the dog pens. Is this the water you're referring to? Yes. And you have dogs? I have one dog. You don't keep him in a pen? No, he stays in the house. Okay. But if you had hunting dogs, and you had this uh, line of you. How many pens do you think there were? I, could, I honestly couldn't tell you. I mean, there's a lot. Eight, but, nine, ten? Sure. And uh, are you familiar with the concept of washing a pen out after a dog defecates in the pen? I've never personally done it, but I'm sure that's what you would do to clean out a pen. Okay. I mean, there's water inside the pens and outside the pens, correct? That's what it looks like. Okay. Go ahead. Harpudlian draws an objection from the prosecution for speaking while the video is playing. He apologizes. Then, while the video is paused, he describes what the body cam footage shows. Okay, so again, this shows the same area 
shows water on the concrete outside these dog pens. Correct? Yes. Okay. Go to the next one, please. So again, this shows, actually there's a light shining, and you see a couple dogs. So those pens are occupied by dogs. There's water outside the pen and inside the pen, as if somebody attempted to wash something out of the pen. Correct? There is water both inside and outside of the pen, yes. Harpoodlian then picks up a shotgun from the evidence box. Let's talk about this shotgun. This is the shotgun that Mr. Murdoch was carrying for at leaning up a car against the car when he got there, is that correct? It was leaning up against that vehicle, yes. The defense attorney then picks up a bag of shotgun shells. According to what you testified to just a moment ago, uh, these are the shells, chain of custody, punch, shotgun, and the shell. They went together. Whenever I released the shotgun to the sled agent who took possession of it, I was unaware of any shells that may have been inside of it at the time that it was handed over. That was what was discovered inside the gun, is my understanding. Okay. Where did that change of evidence? Hey, would you publish this to the jury, please? You would like me to read it? Yes, please. Camo Benelli Super Black Eagle 3 12-gauge shotgun, serial number U573210E17, one unfired shot shell 12-gauge Federal, one unfired shot shell Winchester 16-gauge. Okay, so there's a 12-gauge shell and a 16-gauge shell. Yes. 12-gauge shotgun. Yes. It's maybe way beyond your experience, but can you fire a 16-gauge Shotgun shell from a 12 gauge shotgun. I would not recommend trying it. I don't know that it would actually work or not. Could it result in damage to the person trying to fire the shotgun? More than likely. Oh, Jackson's already said he doesn't have the answer to that. Objections unruled. So you would not write, you can actually harm yourself if you blow up if you pull the trigger on a 16 gauge and a 12 gauge shotgun. I've never tried it nor seen it tried, so I don't, I don't and know. And the reason you don't do that is because you could have harm, personal harm, from doing it, right? It's possible. So this shotgun, according to chain of evidence you just read, had a 16-gauge and a 12-gauge in it. Correct. Um, and it was leaning up against the car. It was. The shotgun was. And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join our next installment as we conclude our coverage of the testimony of Sergeant Daniel Green. Also, check out the new crime story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.